the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nala. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. Welcome to episode 106 of Magic Markets. It's now almost the middle of December, so this year is winding down, but not just yet on Magic Markets. We've got a really cool guest today, but I'm going to let the honor go to my good friend and partner here, Mohamed Nala, to intro this man, because I know, Mo, you are quite excited. So I'm going to now give it to you and uh, tell us who we have on the show today. Yeah, thanks, Ghost. Always a pleasure doing this with you. And the reason I'm excited is because I get the privilege of introducing an old friend of mine, Marco Papich, onto Magic Markets. Marco, for those of you that don't know Marco, uh, he may be familiar to some of our listeners in that Marco's been down to South Africa a number of times. In fact, that's when I, I met him. I was still working at one of the banks down in South Africa, and we would take Marco around to all of the asset managers on a roadshow. Marco is a geopolitical strategist. And way back in the day, he had actually started off BCA Research's uh, geopolitical analysis division. Uh, thereafter, Marco went on and joined a clock tower partner. So he's traded snowy Canada for sunny California. He lives out in Santa Monica. Uh, and as a partner at clock tower, you know, Marco basically is an expert on geopolitics. I mean, to give you a sense of this, for those of you that are not familiar, Marco's also written this fantastic book called A Geopolitical Alpha. And why I enjoyed it so much is that it's, it's not just talking about geopolitics. It actually breaks that down into what are the concepts, what are some of the frameworks you can actually use to make that practical to you in an investment strategy. So, you know, I've spoken to Marco a whole bunch of times over the years, and I was just really excited to bring Marco as this global expert who advises global pension funds, some of the biggest pension funds in the world, to actually come and speak to us on Magic Markets and share his insights with our listeners. So Marco, with that very long introduction, welcome to Magic Markets. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mo, and thank you so much, Finance Ghost. Yeah, and, and Marco, I'm also going to kick off with, 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 with one thing here, right, is that you're no stranger to South Africa. So maybe some of our listeners are like, why are we speaking to Marco? He sits in California. What does he know about South Africa? So some, some lesser known facts, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I laughed a little bit. We were speaking offline, but you have this affinity for Kudu Capaccio, which is a very, let's call it uh, a quiet taste. I don't think many people have actually even tried Kudu Capaccio. Uh, but you also shared something else interesting with me in that one of your very close friends, in fact, your best man at your wedding, is actually a South African who lives out in Port Elizabeth. So I think with those kind of ties to South Africa, you know, you're definitely a friend of the show and definitely uh, South Africa is not something that's unfamiliar to you. Yes, my, my best man, Magesh, he's, uh, uh, he's actually now in Calgary. So a little bit of a story like yours. Uh, we met out at University of British Columbia where we were both studying as undergrads. And actually, deeper than that, um, ever since I left uh, Yugoslavia, Serbia uh, in 94, at every step of my education, one of my best friends was South African at every level. <laughs> it just happened that way. It's, it's, a, it's a funny thing, funny connection with the country. So I know so much about the country. Well, that's ideal and it makes you uh, super interesting to all of our listeners. So 
I put, I certainly plan to read, uh, you know, geopolitical alpha. It's got nothing to do with the Italian cars that I love and everything to do with markets. It's a pH, not an F. But I think the first word is the one we've got to spend a little bit of time on because I think for a lot of retail investors, you know, they like to do the sort of bottom-up analysis on a company and it can be this incredibly heartbreaking thing that can happen to you in your portfolio when you sort of don't understand some of the broader stuff and you get hurt or you do well and you're not always sure why. So I think an understanding of just exactly what geopolitics actually is. It's probably not a bad place to start. And obviously some of the clues are in the name. And maybe how that dovetails with the concept of you know, macroeconomics. This is a, a, an entire school of thought that might be foreign to you know, some people listening to the show who are very focused on equity company level analysis and not necessarily the bigger stuff. Yeah, so I think that's a great point. I mean, macro, macro investing in general just, just subsumes everything that's not company level analysis. So it's a lot of different things. And it's trying to make money off of these very large long-term trends that express themselves sometimes in short-term narratives fighting one another. I mean, it's everything from like, where's inflation going? What are central banks doing? Some of the more traditional macroeconomic things. You know, where's growth going to be over the next 12 months? And what is the stock market pricing in? Uh, so you're sitting there spending, you know, six months analyzing one semiconductor company versus another. And you're like, these guys have just come up with a great shift. They're going to make it. And then the cycle turns and you lose money because semiconductors are like the most macro driven, you know, uh, sub industrial sector in the world. So that's the traditional macro approach. It's very focused on macroeconomics and inflation, growth rates, uh, cycles, interest rates. Um, and I think we as investors, you know, as a community have just kind of given up on everything else. Since the 1980s, we just said like, well, we don't have to follow politics and geopolitics. And for the most part, we were right. I mean, but we just didn't understand a fundamental issue. It's not that you don't have to follow geopolitics and politics because it doesn't matter. It's that in the 1980s onwards, it worked in our favor. It was a tailwind. So you had the Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher revolution in the late 70s and early 80s which was effectively about taking the government out of the realm of commerce and capitalism and markets. It was the laissez-faire revolution, the Chicago boys, you know, the Chicago school. Like, you wanted to take the, the markets, the state, out of the markets. So you had privatization, which is a very literal sense of taking the government out of capitalism by selling its share in companies. You had privatization, you had um, liberalization, deregulation, and finally, free trade, um, you know, abandonment of industrial policy as a tool. Um, you know, you had codification of illegality of state aid in um, global trade agreements. So you, you were not allowed to give your industry some money to build some factories. The stuff that the Biden administration is now doing, uh, you know, head over fist, it's, it's technically illegal by kind of the norms and rules, uh, which are very soft, but still... Um, of the 1980s. And then the other thing was the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, the ascendancy of American hegemony, which by the late 80s, early 90s, basically said there's only one geopolitical game in town. You're either going to follow that game, you're either going to be good, or you're going to see your capital city on CNN with a tomahawk, like, camera, like, coming at it. And that created this other point, which is, like, no country stupid enough to say no to the United States. And I mean, this was also very much the case in South Africa. I mean, the reason apartheid ended is because the United States of America imposed sanctions on South Africa. 
And basically, everybody in South Africa was like, okay, yeah, the game is up. There's nobody to balance these guys. They've decided we're not good anymore. Uh, there's no more Cold War. The Americans and the Brits are not going to, like, basically support us so we don't turn communist. The jig is up. We're going to have to have a conversation domestically. Those, that kind of a thing in South Africa, the, the end of apartheid and the geopolitical pressures from, from outside, basically happened in every country in the world which sent a signal to the investors that there was only one game in town on the political and the geopolitical uh, front. And so we just didn't pay attention anymore to any of that for 40 years. And I think it's coming back now with a vengeance because in this new world, obviously, that's not the case. Yeah, I, th I think it's so interesting to have that historical context, right? Because we now find ourselves almost at the other end of the pendulum swing. You know, those those assumptions that we've made for the last several decades are breaking down. You know, we now have an assertiveness that's coming through from other countries. And we're going to go, we're going to go into this detail, right? Because I know you're out there almost as a contrarian view right now on China. We'll unpack some of that. But that pendulum shift is occurring. And, and something you've spoken about quite a bit, Marco, is, you know, kind of the decline of globalization and the rise of multipolarity. And I think I want to use that as a, as a starting off point. Because again, to, to what Ghost was trying to say, there has to be some sort of practical application to this to the average investor. Now, we know in the institutional asset management space, a lot of managers, certainly up here in North America, are starting to exclude the likes of China from their benchmarks, from their mandates. And this is a massive gaping hole because at the end of the day, China is the world's second largest economy, if not the largest on a PPP type basis. So can you afford to exclude the likes of a China in a multipolar world? And, and the reason why I want to go here with this is South Africa as a small, open, emerging market, a large commodities exporter, strong trade linkages to China, is actually arguably a beneficiary of a multipolar world. You know, we've had some of these themes come through. So what's your view on just multipolarity and where China and maybe by extension, the BRICS fall within this, this greater, let's call it new world architecture? Yeah, so like 1980s, Soviet Union starts declining. U.S. starts basically running the world, more or less. Um, only one game in town. There's only one game in town from about 1985 to, I would say, 2010. And during that, during that period, <clears throat> a country like South Africa had to either get on the program or forget it, you know? Uh, countries that didn't get on the program, like my homeland of Yugoslavia, were absolutely, like, destroyed as sovereign entities. Uh, that's no longer the case. Now, the Chinas and the Americas and the Europes of the world have to get with the program. And the program is, oh, you need some commodities. Oh, you need some of that sweet, sweet nickel and lithium and copper and cobalt. Well, FYPM, I don't know if this is a family show or not, but for those of you in finance, you know exactly what that means. And what that means is that a country like South Africa or a country like Malaysia or a country like Indonesia or Philippines or countries in Latin America the power dynamics have now flipped. Even though China and the U.S. are obviously massively more powerful than South Africa, there's two or three or four of them, you know, and they can be played off against one another. And because we're not in a bipolar world, and this is where I would argue Mo, most people get this wrong, including some really, really smart people I respect, but because we're not in a Cold War, because the U.S. and China do not have the preponderance of power that the Soviet Union and the U.S. had, they cannot establish these firm blocks where they kind of slap all their allies into shape and say, listen, we're confronting the Soviet Union. 
Don't mess around, you're on, in our camp. Now it's kind of a free-for-all. So what you have is this doubling down and tripling down on buying allegiance from middle powers like South Africa. And I have so many examples of this that it's like, like it's just, the empirical examples are everywhere. I mean, Indonesia is a good case, hosted the G20. Joko Widodo, the president, also known as Joko, he said to Vladimir Putin, you're welcome to come. Everybody in the West lit themselves on fire. Did they punish Jokowi? Did they say something bad to Indonesia about this? No. They gave Indonesia $20 billion aid to decarbonize. Like, that's what came out of the G20. Like, hey, Jakarta, thank you so much for hosting this. No worries about inviting the supposedly canceled, the most evil person on the planet. Here's $20 billion. The Philippines. The Philippines had a, um, a helicopter deal with the Russians. The Americans came and said, you can't buy Russian helicopters in the middle of a war in Ukraine. And the Philippines were like, uh, watch me. I don't know. What are you going to do? So the Americans wrote them a check. Like, here's $100 million to buy something else. Please, just don't, like, don't pay us back. You know, uh, UAE. The UAE didn't want to buy Huawei. Didn't want to, uh, sorry, didn't want to ban Huawei. And the Americans said, well, we can't give you F-35s then. So they went out and bought some Rafales. The examples of this kind of a dynamic where it's the middle powers that now can play the great powers off of one another, it's, it's really incredible. And it's, and it's empowering. And it's going to launch another emerging market decade. And this is, I think, something that a lot of people are missing. Now, there's other reasons that emerging markets are going to do well. Since 2014, they've deleveraged. They've more or less cleaned up their, their balance of payments. We can, argue, we can argue whether there's a commodity super cycle or not. I think energy is less clear. I think metals, it's pretty clear that there will be. Um, China's not just going to bring its real estate investments to zero. Not going to happen. The country would have a French Revolution if it did. So if China so, so much as maintains flat its real estate investment into the decade and the green tech, uh, green tech revolution kind of carries onwards, we don't have enough commodities for that combination of factors. So if you believe there's a commodity super cycle, and if you believe that emerging markets have, you know, like self-flagellated over the last eight years due to the problems they've had uh, in the last uh, cycle, then what you have is a really potent recipe for outperformance of emerging markets. And I'm not just saying that because I'm speaking to two South Africans. So Marco, maybe I can jump in there as the guy who had no electricity up until an hour and a half ago. You know, Mo's currently dealing with the snow and dodgy internet and they don't always have medicine. Here we've got everything but electricity. And I guess, yeah, South African, the South African approach to the whole Russia-Ukraine thing was, was interesting in many ways because it was somewhat neutral, right? We didn't want to irritate anyone, actually. So if I listen to what you're saying, it feels to me on the ground in South Africa, it was a little bit like that. There was a lot of pressure to kind of pick a side. And I think our government sort of stayed out the way of that a little bit. So I'm curious from your perspective wearing this very international hat, but also understanding a lot about South Africa and maybe a lot more than many international commentators and analysts would perhaps understand. In your view, where do we kind of stack up at the moment as a country relative to some other emerging markets, for example? Obviously, in a commodities world, you know, barring our infrastructure, which has some serious issues, uh, you know, we should theoretically do quite well. And we've actually emerged out of the pandemic I think a little bit better than we went into it, to be honest, load shedding notwithstanding. If I just look around me on, at ground level, South Africa has actually come out pretty strongly. Uh, absolutely, in, including in performance of some assets, you know, which, which caught a lot of people sur by surprise. I think, um, look, a lot of emerging markets, 
like, they took the lessons of the Washington Consensus seriously. So they actually raised rates well before a lot of the other um, developed markets. So I would say that that combined with the strength of commodities sets up a really interesting situation. Now in 2021, most assets, like if you look at performance of assets of commodity exporters, didn't catch up to commodity prices. You know, and I think that this is a function of the five-year, five-year forward and long-term exp uh, long inflation expectations, which have remained kind of subdued. In other words, investors did not bid up emerging market assets as much as they probably should have given 2021 commodity um, performance because they just, didn't, they just assumed this, this cannot last. And then 2022 kind of, you know, Prove that correct. I mean, 2022 has been a terrible year for commodities for the most part. And so it vindicated um, a lack of confidence in like Latin American asset performance or South African. Like the fact that it wasn't really one-to-one -one correlation with movement in commodities and prices in emerging markets. Uh, but I think that's a mistake. I think this was an interregnum in a commodity super cycle. Uh, I caught it, you know, um, to the credit of my team. Myself, we looked at Chinese demand, we saw it coming down. And so we made a tactical call saying like, look, we are believers in a commodity super cycle, but nothing goes up in a straight line. Like, sorry. And that is not really a reason to be bearish about South Africa. I think South Africa is going to catch this wave. South Africa has much bigger institutional political problems, like this chronic unemployment, you know, underemployment, um, uh, like the plight of the middle class, all these things are still there and still a problem. Um, but I do think the country can catch a commodity super cycle wave almost no matter what. Mark, I'm going to try and push back a little bit on that. And I'll, I'll tell you why. It's, you know, we've, we've been in the markets long enough to realize that, you know, South Africa's track record of scoring own goals is, is pretty, pretty good. I remember when platinum prices were close on $2,000 an ounce. And back then, South Africa failed to capitalize on that commodity super cycle, specifically because it was the start of ESCOM's energy constraints. That's when load shedding just started. And there was like probably what, like 2008 there and thereabouts, right? So my, my concern is right now, as we're standing with these pressures in global energy markets, here's a good example. In South Africa, you've got labor unrest that has compromised Transnet, which is the, the, the state-owned freight, let's call it freight uh, entity. And that has constrained South Africa's exportability in coal markets, for example. So the ability to capitalize on prices that are maybe two times what they were a year ago is severely constrained. Uh, what's your view on that specifically? Because I've seen this playbook before. Unfortunately, South Africa has struggled to sort out some of those structural issues. And so even if we go into this global commodity super cycle, and you know, even if I buy that thesis from a macro perspective, where is South Africa positioned given some of these constraints we've seen in the past and are currently experiencing right now? See, Moses is trying to make himself feel better about living in the snow. That's what's going on here. I can hear him doing it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, listen, uh, I agree with you. Um, a rising tide lifts all boats. But on an EM allocation, like if you have to pick emerging markets, I'm far more bullish about Latin America. And I'm all... It's safe for some countries like Colombia, which I think are going in the wrong direction due to politics. And I'm also very bullish on Indonesia. So countries where governance is improving, obviously you want to be invested in those. And I do think that South Africa has this real problem, this chronic problem, 
with very high unemployment that's created a persistent political problem. You know, it's difficult to pursue painful orthodox policies when you have this radical element in your politics that wants radical change. So I don't, I don't know how that's going to be resolved uh, anytime soon. Nonetheless, even if you ship less coal, the price is higher, so you'll still make more money. And that's, you know, in a, in a way, the worst thing that can happen for South Africa probably in the very long term is a commodity super cycle because it will paper over a lot of the problems. There'll be more money to go around. And so people will be, you know, like relatively happy, happier than they were five years ago, definitely happier than 2011 to 2020, which was a terrible decade for emerging markets. Um, so speaking of your platinum example, but like, you know, it's, it's in an EM allocation matrix, I would not have South Africa very high. I so I, I want to jump in again before, before Ghost accuses me of, of trying to just bash South Africa because I'm sitting in the frigid north right now. But, you know, the, the counterbalance, I want to pick up on this, is you mentioned Indonesia a couple of times. So I want to pick up on that because Indonesia was this big beneficiary, as you indicated, of the transition finance. And I think they did such a fantastic job of playing off these global parties and sourcing that, that, that financing, arguably, let's call it on, on preferential terms. Now, South Africa has been central to that whole just transition debate globally. South Africa has been very vocal in terms of trying to tap global concessional financing. And I, I saw an interview, I think it was on CNBC, uh, where you were discussing, I think it was energy and how, for example, in public markets, you want to almost play you know, the, the, the existing energy players, you know, for the cash flows. And in private markets, you want to play the clean energy players, you know, so you can actually be almost agnostic from an ESG perspective and just try and capture the risk premium in the right place based on, on where you're stacked up. Now, maybe just a quick point on, you know, where does South Africa stack up from a private market perspective? Because that's where I certainly have seen a lot of activity has been in the clean energy space. And South Africa Incidentally, it's been one of the, the outperformers there. You know, I was speaking to one of the pension funds up here. They're complaining about returns on some of the clean energy deals. And I said, it's because you're chasing Nordic wind farms. That's all you're doing. Why don't you go and chase energy projects in South Africa, for example, where your IRRs are a lot wider? So maybe before we move off South Africa and, and into a broader context, you know, what's your view on South Africa specifically when it comes to energy? Because that's been the pressure point. Well, I think I'm a tourist in that kind of field. You know, when it comes to like private markets in South Africa on green tech, I mean, um, I did launch a green tech fund here at Clock Tower. I helped launch it due to my long term views on where we're going. Uh, so it's not like I don't have any insights, but I would say that it's a little bit of a too detailed question for me. Nonetheless, uh, you know, we have a fintech fund here at Clock Tower, and I can tell you that. Uh, we're almost most excited about the application of these technologies to the markets outside of the West. Why? Because that's where you're under-financialized. Like at the end of the day, you know, your, your Bank of America app is good enough. So like, like going in and investing in a fintech company somewhere in like Italy or the US, meh, it's okay, it's cool. But doing it in Latin America where it's not about an app, it's about the fact that you can't get credit. That's where you're gonna have, as, you, as you're saying, the returns are gonna be much higher because now you're not just creating an app. Like Bank of America's app is awesome. You know, like it, you don't need a better app than that. The issue is you don't have a bank that wants to bank with you in a place like Mexico or Brazil or South Africa. Similarly with green technology, you know, you're like as, as Finance Ghost is looking at us an hour and a half, he was cranking a generator. I don't know what you were doing, but like you didn't have electricity 
it seems like some of these new technologies might be helpful. I don't know. I'm just like, you know, there's sun in South Africa. There's winds. I once landed in Cape Town. I, I mean, I nearly vomited through my, I was like, a, the worst landing in my, in my life uh, was in Cape Town. The winds were crazy. So like you've got wind, you've got sun. And so the issue is that you can start resolving, bring your own infrastructure kind of a thing is more, could have pretty interesting returns in a place like that. So I agree with you. Um, and also there's other countries too in emerging market, like emerging market like, like Israel. I think Israel is going to benefit a lot from this green technology and the private space. And they know it because they've been doing it for longer than a lot of other people, you know, lack of resources. And that's, I think, what's interesting about this whole like green tech movement. Um, it's really a shift in psychology and in an approach to industrialization. We've been industrializing for 300 years, trying to scale everything, produce everything at scale. The race to zero movement, it's all about doing more with less. It's about efficiency. And I think what's interesting about that is countries like South Africa, like Israel, have been doing that for a very long time out of necessity. And so they're actually almost better equipped to participate in this. And I agree with you, there'll be a lot of innovation out of it. I'm just not really an expert um, about the space. Now, it, why am I long everything brown in publics and short every, and, and long everything green in privates? Well, I speak to a lot of family offices that are ESG agnostic. You know, they don't have the mandates of the pension funds that I also speak to. And I, I just tell them, look, it's clear what's happening. You pointed out, Mo, like it's a risk premium issue. In the public markets, we're starving fossil fuels for capital. So you should provide it with capital because you'll get better returns. I mean, I'm a simple guy, supply and demand. Nobody can provide them with money. Just give them money. You'll, they'll make you money. It's, it's the sin premium. It's like tobacco stocks. Whereas on the green energy side, most of the stuff that we consider green in public markets is just like greenwashed. You know, you look at these ESG, like it's a joke. Like you've got software companies in there like, well, they don't have carbon emissions. It's, it's stupid. And then there's like one company, Tesla, like, which I have nothing bad to say. I don't, want, I don't want Twitter to come after me and stuff. Like I have nothing bad to say about Tesla. I'm just saying like it's one company the one company we have that everyone plows into when they want to invest in something green. And British American Tobacco right up there is an ESG favorite. That is my ultimate of all of them. It's like, yes, you killed fewer people than last year. That's excellent. Well done, guys. You go straight that's, to the no, top of the right. class. Yay, you. But like my point is it's like on the green energy stuff and our green technology, on, on agricultural technology, on all this cool stuff that's coming down the pipeline, we have very few publicly traded firms. And so instead of plowing into where everybody's going, where obviously the returns are going to be lower, you should invest in, in private markets. And I think having like your suggestion, Mo, is like don't just look at North America or Europe, look elsewhere. And I agree with you. That's definitely, that, that would be a smarter way to do it. Marco, earlier you touched on South America, which I just think is interesting, something to highlight and maybe some insight for you. So South African corporates looking for opportunities offshore, especially retailers. They've always done deals in either the UK or Australia with very poor success, really terrible track, track records. They just go and destroy shareholder money left and right. And Pepcor, our basically our biggest value retailer, they've just done a deal in Brazil. So it's interesting to see South African corporates maybe starting to look that way. Obviously, the mining companies have always been doing this. You know, Anglo has got a huge copper investment in Peru that they're very excited about. But now the retailers are starting to look that side. And it's just intuitively, it makes a lot of sense. And the other thing I just wanted to highlight, less of a question, just more of a point, you know, for our listeners and, and for you out of interest is 
two South African sort of fintech companies are now going into the Philippines. So one is Easy Equities, which has become like the ubiquitous South African stockbroker. They've literally created this huge market of retail investors. The Philippines is their big international expansion. And another one is Time Bank, which is supported by African Rainbow Capital. They are starting something in the Philippines called GoTime. Um, and again, it's just like a very typical branchless banking kind of scenario. But it's just fascinating for me that two South African companies arrived at this conclusion that the Philippines is where they should go and take their fintech product. So it's very interesting to see South African corporates starting to look far broader than just ooh, London or Australia or whatever the case may be. It's good to see. Yeah, like going sideways, not up and down. Exactly. And I think that's interesting. I mean, you know, like the old adage, there's more flights to London out of Joburg than any, any city in Africa, you know, and I, and I completely agree with you. That's really smart. The demographic profile of these countries, the income inequality profile. If you're a retailer in South Africa and you're dealing with these different kind of like income levels and demographic levels, you're going to obviously find more success in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia or Philippines than you are trying to break into the United Kingdom or Australia just because the queen is on the bills, you know, like it's just not going to yeah, work. I want to touch on a point here. I mean, yeah. Well, the king now. The king, the king yeah, now. Not, not the queen. <laughs> well, he's not yet on the money, right? They're still going to change the money. I know certainly on Canadian money, we don't have the pictures of the king yet. But Marco, something I want to touch on as well is that the LATAM theme has come through. So even on Magic Markets, I mean, a little while ago, we were chatting to one of our brand partners, Andro Capital, and they had highlighted a company in LATAM called Patria. And Patria was like almost like the little Blackstone of LATAM. So, you know, you know, very niche alternative investment space, that LATAM theme coming through quite strongly. But to Go's point around South African corporates and their interplay with other emerging markets, I want to go from there into China, because again, I think, you know, to your point, Marco, you had said, invest where players are starved of capital, for example, and you can extract that additional premium. Now, because China's falling out of mandates, because China is, you know, almost becoming a bit of a pariah state, certainly from a Western perspective, that creates opportunities in China. I know that you're a China bull. You're saying this could actually be a fantastic year for China. And that's actually a view I share. I've carried the pain over this last year, you know, with a lot of Chinese investments, and it's been a painful year. So with the South African tie-up, I mean, obviously, we've got NASPERS process, the very strong investment or large investment in Tencent, which is kind of their, their one very good investment. And then they lost money on a whole bunch of other investments, a discussion for another day. But in terms of China specifically, how do you see that interplay of China now flexing some of its muscle, Xi Jinping now stronger than he's ever been, you know, that from a, a policy clarity perspective, you know, how do we frame that bullish China narrative of yours? And a second follow on to that is recently, just last week, we saw the Saudi Arabians hosting China's leader Xi Jinping in, in Saudi Arabia. What are your views around risks to the petrodollar? and how that impacts kind of global multipolarity as we try and wrap up this conversation. Okay, so like I, I would say that I'm very bullish in China for the next six months, maybe 12, we'll see. Um, and it's, you know, one of the reasons is that it was such a bad year this year, not to be petty, but you know, bad year, terrible year, worst year ever. Uh, it's due for a bounce. And the second reason is that they are rotating like 180 degree turn on all the policies from 2022 not just zero COVID, which is in the news, but also things like uh, their real estate, they are supporting developers in a big way. Monetary policy, the PBOC has restarted its PSL facility, which in 2015 and 2016 allowed China to stimulate through a monetary channel. It basically ended up in fiscal. Uh, they're using that to help developers as well. And so 
Um, and finally, they are unwinding some of the regulation of the TMT sector, which obviously matters for companies like Tencent. So you've had this incredible rally in Chinese tech stocks, up 64%, I believe, since like October. Um, and I think that there will be a little bit of digestion, I think, over the next couple of weeks, maybe a month or two, where maybe Chinese rally cools off. But I'm still bullish in China because it's clear what's happened. China had a political volatility year where politics took precedent over everything else. That's now over, and they're now focusing on putting in bottoming growth. Uh, and they're doing it with real conviction and with speed. Now, I'm not a long-term China bull necessarily, because I do think China has a lot of problems, starting with the fact that the middle-class story of China is kind of over, both because of demographics, but also because of over-leverage. Leverage is really the big issue. Household debt as percent of disposable income in China is higher than in the U.S. So in the long term, I am worried about China and what China looks like. Um, but I think for the next 12 months, it is a clear buy to me. Now, geopolitically, we're also seeing some positive signs where a lot of the aggressive, assertive foreign policy out of China is being dampened down. You know, they've sent their policymakers to Europe on kind of an apology tour. They're trying to, like, calm down the situation. And they're not helping Russians, unlike what the Western media is obsessed with. They're just not. Like, there's a reason Russia is asking for Iranian drones. It's not because Iranian drones are good. It's because they're not getting the Chinese ones. So I think that, uh, you know, like, China's clearly focused now on growth and on, on that performance, which is positive. Politics is in the back. There's two risks, though. One, U.S. is just not going to quit. U.S. is going to keep like pushing China, trying to provoke it, trying to cause China to lose its cool. Um, and so you will see more what I call Nancy Pelosi missiles, you know, launched at China. And this is designed specifically to get Beijing to lose its cool so that America can then show the rest of the world, aha, we told you so, these guys can't control their temper. That's literally what this is designed to do. And so you should expect more of that. And so if you're a long-term investor in China, you now have to bet that Beijing will remain cool under pressure from the U.S. And that, you know, the longer your time horizon, the shorter the probability that that's going to be the case. Um, and that's why I, what, what I tell investors is like, look, China is a great place to harvest geopolitical alpha. It's a great place to be nimble, to be a trader, but you got to stay liquid and you got to think about alpha, not beta anymore. On the other hand, the other risk, uh, I think, to like Chinese investing um, is also that the Commerce Department is going to be at various Chinese sectors in a very, very serious way. So like what we saw on October 7th with the semiconductor ban, um, you know, is probably the end of the U.S. semiconductor assault on China, just because it can't get allies to do more. But I think that you should expect more sectors to come under scrutiny. And that you'll have this drip, drip, drip of just new rules from the Biden administration over the next 12 months. Uh, that's going to cause volatility. So it's going to be tough just holding these stocks. You're, you're going to have to, you know, really, really be nimble and, and take some 20% losses here and there and just ride them out. Uh, but you're right. The rest of the world does not see China in the same light as America. You know, and this is, this is the big difference between the Cold War and the current situation. The Americans are trying to flag China-U.S. conflict as a sort of a global, bipolar, you're with us or against us kind of a thing. The rest of the world is just like, okay, cool. Cool story, bro. Um, you know, no, we don't see it that way. And as long as China doesn't do something overtly aggressive, 
The rest of the world is just not going to join the Americans in this assault. And the, South, the Saudi Arabia meeting with Xi is a great example of this. The, the American press is basically talking about some realignment, about Saudi Arabia like now getting China as an ally, which is ridiculous. The Saudis are not doing that. The Saudis are just being extremely intelligent. They're playing both sides against one another. This isn't a real realignment. It's simply Saudis being smart, bargaining, and being geopolitically promiscuous, which is what you should be doing as a country in this environment. So American press and American media is hyperventilating, but the Saudis are not going to move away from petrodollars, and it's a simple reason, because what are you going to do with Remimbi when you get it? Can you buy a condo in Hainan Island? Can you, you know, like, I mean, you can increasingly do a lot. The Chinese are smart. They're opening up their capital markets. You can buy some Chinese bonds, like they've made that a lot easier than it was 10 years ago. So there's ways to park your Remimbi and make it work, but it's not as easy as dollars, you know? Because one thing that you still can't do is really take your Remimbi out of China. And two, you can't take your, your Remimbi to Peru and build a copper mine with it because the Peruvians are going to be like, yo, bro, I want some dollars. So I think that there's overstated, you know, like everybody does some business deal with China and the Americans are labeling them somehow treasonous to liberal democracy. And it's like, no, bro, you're just like overly hyped about this country and what it means for your standing as a global power. Uh, and I think you'll see more and more middle powers, only in Saudi Arabia's case, maybe not such a middle power anymore, maybe a regional hegemon. You'll see more and more countries saying to the Americans, like, look, bro, if there's World War III, we're fighting on your side. Don't, don't have any doubts about that. World War III happens, we're dying with you. But until then, like, I got to get paid. So, Marco, just, just on that, that kind of Saudi point, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you your view on energy markets. I mean, we know energy markets are quite constrained. There's, there's a lot of to and fro. You know, there's OPEC plus, there's the Russia-Ukraine situation that is complicated matters. And now there's this Russian energy cap. And, you know, can that actually be executed? We've seen oil prices come under a lot of pressure over the course of the last week or two. Um, maybe just your view on energy markets, because this has a very material bearing on, again, not just South Africa from an inflation perspective. South Africa is a very large oil importer, but just for inflation generally. So your quick view on, on energy markets, just because it's so fundamental to the entire macro thesis. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to share this chart with you guys. I know uh, our listeners can't listen to it, but it's basically a chart of Chinese non-oil imports and uh, Brent oil prices. And basically, it's like coincident one-to-one -one correlation and has been for a long time. Why? Because Chinese uh, imports are probably the most macro variable in the world. They, they are like, they're, they're telling you what is China doing? Is it contributing or detracting from global demand writ large? And so China requires energy. When, when it's importing a lot of things, it's got to move those things around with trucks and with like rail and it needs energy. And what happened earlier this year is this alligator chart formation, which you can kind of see here. Uh, in March, April, oil prices go up right as China's vomiting. And at the time, everybody, by everybody, I mean Fintwit, but also other large asset managers like Bridgewater, like Goldman Sachs, was basically like, look, there's a war going on with the second largest exporter in the world. There's an EU oil embargo and inventories are low. Like all the things that were in the headlines you could read. And nobody checked on demand picture. So my team and I, we shorted oil. We shorted it in May. We got our face ripped off because oil prices went up in May. 
the commodity complex broke down, but I looked stupid in oil. So what did I do in June? Well, because I am who I am, I tripled down on the short. And I said, like, screw that. This is going down. For two reasons. One, the EU oil embargo is a joke. It's a PR. Okay? The Ukraine war gave us the same amount of oil, more or less, at discounted prices. Like, think about that. Like, you know, I didn't expect that. By the way, I'm not smart enough to have forecast that ahead of the war. It's just that, you know, three months into the war, I looked at the data and I was like, wait a minute, we're getting the same amount of oil out of Russia. It's at a discount. Why are we like bidding up the price? And then the second thing is this, this chart told, told us China's like falling off a cliff. Now, I want to be long oil right now. I closed my short recommendation probably about three weeks too early, by the way. Uh, so I did it at the beginning of, no, of November. So obviously oil prices have come down 10% more, but I don't, didn't want to go long. I didn't want to go long. I'm itching to go long. It's just that this is one of those, this isn't stocks, you know? And what I mean by that is you can be long Chinese stocks on sentiment, on zero COVID policy change. You can be long financial assets due to kind of like shifts, thinking about ahead of the time, but you really can't be long oil without fundamentals reversing. And Chinese non oil imports took another leg down. Now, I think this is behind us. I think this is going to stabilize. I have a high conviction view in that. It's just that I think oil prices are going to have to see that happen before they kind of put a bottom in. So again, I'm itching to be long energy, uh, especially here. Um, it's just that it's going to take a little bit more time, I think, for confirmation. The other thing I would say to a lot of people listening to this, you know, who are retail investors, just like Fintwit is filled with really smart people. But the problem is it's like, a very first order analysis, you know, like be very careful with what you read online. There's like a reason that the research I produce can sometimes be like $200,000 a year. Okay. And why like getting it for free on internet is not going to be the same. Extrapolation of linear trends is not how people make money. Otherwise all of us would be billionaires, right? It's easy to extrapolate linearly. And a lot of people just extrapolated like inventory levels being low. How many energy guys on Fintwit were like inventories? It's like, look, bro, if looking at inventories was how you became a commodity trader, then every moron would either be a billionaire or there would be no money to be made. Inventories are what like first order analysts look at because it's easy because you have the data. You just like look at it. And look, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. Obviously, it's the one thing you can grasp on. The problem is that the art, that's the science. The art component of predicting commodity markets is the demand side. And that's where you need to be a little bit more sophisticated and think about the macro picture. And a lot of people got their faces ripped off this year because they just kept thinking about war, inventories, shortages. It's not that simple. So Marco, before Mo turns this into a macro odyssey over seven episodes of Magic Markets, because I know he's geeking out on this and I'm thoroughly enjoying it myself. But I tell you what, I'm going to be the one who, who starts to bring it to a close. So this is our last question. And the question is, and, and obviously to the extent you can share, you know, to your point, there's a lot of very deep research that you guys do for big institutional clients, which clearly you cannot share with us. But, you know, anything you are willing to comment on a couple of minutes in terms of how you are positioned going into 2023? Um, any sort of particularly interesting ideas or, or, or what your sort of advice has been to clients? Okay, so uh, in terms of global asset allocation next year, like, look, I'll just, there's a lot of things, you know, a lot of things are moving. Uh, my message to investors right now is that I think the Fed and China have reached the terminus of their hawkishness austerity. And uh, this happened before. This happened in 2016. 
in early 2016, the Fed pivoted and paused for 10 months. China stimulated its shantytown redevelopment uh, ended up being really, really significant. I think that same setup is happening now. Now people tell me, but Mark, it's different. CPI is at like 8%. How can the Fed pivot? Well, it's not going to do QE. It's not going to cut rates. It's not even going to pause. But all it needs to do is engineer real yields moving sideways instead of going up as if shot from a SpaceX rocket, which is what happened this year. So to me, that, th those two are a recipe for outperformance of non-US uh, assets as the dollar weakens. Um, and I'm particularly interested in emerging markets because the tenure is behaving. It's not blowing out. The dollar is behaving. It's not blowing out. And finally, China's putting bottom in growth. And, you know, politics, politics, who cares? Like Karl Marx could rise from the grave, run and become a president of a Latin American country. But if the tenures are well bid, if the dollar is depreciating and if China's stimulating, like money's going to fall from the heavens for these commodity exporters. And so I like emerging markets. I like high beta plays to China, like Japan. Currency has come down. Equities haven't gone up. And finally, my kind of like highest conviction view, most controversial view, is probably Europe. Because, um, you know, we didn't, talk, we didn't talk about Ukraine much, but I think the war is in stasis and it's behind us. And the energy crisis in Europe is over. Like everyone's worrying, how are they going to buy gas next year? Man, don't worry about it. Germans are out there putting up LNG import terminals. Things that take three to four years to build, they're building in six months. Um, when there's a will, there's a way. And, you know, you're betting against a highly industrialized, highly sophisticated society from figuring it out. They're going to figure it out. I think, Marco, that's fascinating. You know, I think uh, there's, there's a lot of congruency between my kind of worldview and, and some of the views you've put on the table. And, and again, maybe that's because I, I have been using some of the frameworks and the tools that you've, uh, you've put out there in, in your book. So again, to our listeners who haven't seen that, go and check it out. It's, it's Marco Papich. That's P-A-P-I-C. And the book is called Geopolitical Alpha. I, I certainly have recommended it on the show before. Marco, you know I'm a big fan, although I'm still waiting for my, my autographed copy, which hasn't arrived in the mail yet. But uh, aside, aside from that, aside from that, you know, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. I mean, we could literally speak to you for you know, another hour and just scratch the surface. We're just really grateful that you've availed your time of us and our listeners to share some of those views uh, certainly, you know, next time you're down in South Africa, if I'm not around, I think uh, we'll definitely connect you with Ghost and he can find a place where you can enjoy some of the, the Kudu Kapasho. But, uh, you know, next time you're up here in Canada, you're certainly a lot closer to, to me than, than you are to the Ghost right now. Uh, you know, hit us up and uh, we'll, gladly, uh, we'll gladly host you and, and have some interesting conversations. But you know, to our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this as much as, as we've enjoyed hosting Marco on the show. And uh, yeah, you know, this is a nice way to wrap up the year. I think Marco shared some of his ideas in terms of next year, where that goes. So perhaps, uh, you know, we'll give this some time, Marco, and we can invite you back on the show next year again to see how some of these views have, have gone. But thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, guys. It's a real pleasure. And I can't wait to come to South Africa. I do plan to do that in 2023. And Toronto, obviously, I'm Canadian. So I'll be in Toronto many times. Come hang out in Cape Town. We can show you the wind and how we're not using it to make electricity. Marco, thank you so much. It's been an absolute treat appreciate it this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice please speak to your personal financial advisor